Chapter Six of Nothing of Importance by Bernard Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Bois Francais Trenches. This is a chapter of maps, diagrams, and technicalities. There are people, I know, who do not want maps, to whom maps convey practically nothing. These people can skip this chapter, and, from their point of view, they will lose nothing. The main interest of life lies in what is done and thought, and it does not much matter exactly where these acts and thoughts take place. Maps are like anatomy. To some people it is of absorbing interest to know where our bones, muscles, arteries and all the rest of our interior lie. To others these things are of no account whatever. Yet all are alike interested in human people. And so, quite understanding, I think you are really very romantic in your dislike of maps, you associate them with the duller kind of history and examination papers. I bid you mapless ones farewell till page 117, promising you, again, that you shall lose nothing. Now to work. We understand each other, we map lovers. The other folk have gone on to the next chapter, so we can take our time. It is the trenches at Bois-Francais that we held for over four months. I may fairly claim to know every inch of them, I think. It is obvious that if you are at Bois-Francais, and look north, you have an uninterrupted view not only of both front lines running down into Fricourt Valley, but of both lines running up on to the high ground north of Fricourt, and a very fine view indeed of Fricourt itself, and Fricourt Wood. It is also quite clear that from their front lines north of Fricourt the Germans had a good view of our front lines and communications in the valley. But of Bois-Francais and our trenches east of it they had no enfilade view, as all our communications were on the reverse slope of this shoulder of high ground. So as regards observation we were best off. Moreover, whereas they could not possibly see our support lines and communications at Bois-Francais, we could get a certain amount of enfilade observation of their trenches opposite from point 87, where there was a work called Boot Redoubt and an artillery observation post. The position of the artillery immediately becomes clear when the lie of the ground is once grasped for field artillery and fillade fire is far more effective as the trajectory is lower than that of heavy artillery. That is to say, a whiz-bang, the name given to an eighteen-pound shell, more or less skims along the ground and comes at you, whereas howitzers fire up in the air and the shell rushes down on top of you. If a battery of eighteen-pounders can fire up a trench, it has far more effect against the nine men in that trench than if it fires at it broadside. The same applies, of course, to howitzers, but as howitzers drop shells down almost perpendicularly, they can be used with great effect traversing along a trench, that is to say, getting the exact range of the trench, and dropping shells methodically from right to left, or left to right, so many to each fire-bay, and dodging about a bit, and going back on to a bit out of turn, so that the enemy cannot tell where the next coal-box is coming. Oh, it is a great game this for the actors, but not for the unwilling audience. 
A battery of field artillery stationed in a gully could bring excellent enfilade fire onto the German trenches. Howitzers lived in all sorts of secret places. One never worried about them. They knew their business. Once, in June, on our way into the trenches, we halted close by a battery, and I looked into one of the gun pits and saw the terrible monster sitting with its long nose in the air, and I saw the great shells waiting in rows. But I felt like an interloper, and fled at the approach of a gunner. All these howitzers you see firing on the Somme films we never saw or thought about, only we loved to hear their shells whistling and griding. If there is no such word, I cannot help it, there is an R and a D in the sound anyway. Over our head, and falling crump, 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 along the German support trenches. There were a lot of batteries in the Bois de Tailly. The woods were full of them, and grew fuller and fuller. I do not know what they all were. As one brigade contains four battalions, we almost invariably had two battalions in the line, and two in billets. So it was usually six days in and six days out. During these six days out, we also invariably supplied four working parties per company, which lasted nine hours from the time of falling in outside company headquarters to dismissing after marching back. Still, it was billets. One slept uninterruptedly, and with equipment and boots off. Now we were undeniably lucky in being invariably, from February to June 1916, billeted in Moreland Corps, which is situated in a regular cup with high ground all round it. It was a cosy spot, and a very jolly thing after that long, long weary grind up from Meaux at the end of a weary six days in, to look down on the snug little village waiting for you below. For once over the hill, and swinging down into Moreland Corps, one became, as it were, cut off from the war suddenly and completely. It was somewhat like shutting the door on a stormy night. Everything outside was going on just the same, but with it was shut out also a wearing, straining tension of body and mind. Yes, we were very lucky in being billeted at Moreland Corps. It was just too far off to be worth shelling, whereas Bray was shelled regularly almost every day. So was Mion, and there were brigades billeted in both Bray and Mion. There were troops in tents in the Bois de Tailly, and this too was sometimes shelled. We were always able to relieve by day, thanks to the rolling nature of the country. We always used to go by the route through Mayon at one time, until they took to shelling the road. Whether they could see us from an observation post up La Bozelle way, or whether they spotted us by observation balloon or aeroplane, one cannot say. But latterly, we always used the route by the Bois de Tailly and Gibraltar. In both cases, we had to cross high ground, but on arrival we were again in a valley and out of observation. All along this road were a series of dugouts, and here were companies in reserve, R.E. headquarters, R.A.M.C. dressing station, field kitchens, stores, etc. And here the transport brought up rations every evening via Bray. One could walk about here completely secure from view but latterly they took to shelling it, and it was not a healthy spot then. 
It was also enfiladed occasionally by long-range machine-gun fire, but on the whole it was a good spot, and one had a curious sensation being able to walk about on an open road within a thousand yards of the Germans. The dugouts, called 71 North, were the best. The bank sloped up very steeply from the road, thus protecting the dugouts along it from anything but shell-fire of very high trajectory. And this the Germans never used. However, one did not want to walk too far along the road, for it led round the corner into full view of Fricourt. There was a trench at the side of the road that ought to be hopped down into, but it could easily be missed, and there was no barrier across the road. I saw a motorcyclist dash right along to the corner once, and return very speedily when he found himself gazing full view at Fricourt. A map of our area of fighting gives details of our trenches and the German trenches opposite. I wish I could convey the sense of intimacy with which I am filled when I look at this map. It is something like the feelings I should ascribe to a farmer looking at a map of his property, every inch of which he knows by heart. Every field, every copse, every lane, every hollow and hill are intimate things to him. With every corner he has some association. Every tree cut down, every fence repaired, every road made up, every few hundred yards of shaw grubbed up, every acre of orchard enclosed and planted, all these he can call back to memory at his will. So do I know every corner, every turning in these trenches. Every traverse has its peculiar familiarity, very often its peculiar history. This traverse was built the night after P's death. This trench was dug because 75 Street was so marked down by the enemy rifle grenades. Another was a terrible straight trench till we built those traverses in it. Another was a morass until we boarded it. How well I remember being half buried by a canister at the corner of 78 Street. And the night the mine blew in all the trench between the fort and the loop. What an awful dug-out that was at Trafalgar Square! How we loathed the straightness of Watling Street! And so on, ad infinitum. We were in those trenches for over four months, and I know them as one knows the creaking of the doors at home, the subtle smell of the bathroom, the dusty atmosphere of the box-room, or the lowness of the cellar-door. Particularly intimate are the recollections of dugouts, with their good or bad conveniences in the way of beds and tables, their beams that smote you on the head as regularly as clockwork, or their peculiarly musty smell. One dugout invariably smelt of high rodent, another of sandbag, nothing but sandbag. From February, then, to June, we kept on going into these trenches and then back to Morlancourt for rest and working parties, all as regular as clockwork. Once or twice the actual front line held by our battalion was altered, so that I have been in the trenches all along, from the cemetery, down in the valley, to the end of the craters opposite Danube Trench B. Maple Redoubt was what is known as a strong point. In case of an enemy attack piercing our front line, the company in Maple Redoubt held out at all costs to the last man, even if the enemy got right past and down the hill. 
There was a dugout which was provisioned full up with bully beef and water, in empty petrol cans, ready for this emergency. There was a certain amount of barbed wire put out in front of the trenches, and there were two Lewis gun positions. Really it was not a bad little place, although the defences of Maple Redoubt were always looked on by us as rather more of a big joke than anything. No one ever really took seriously the thought of the enemy coming over and reaching Maple Redoubt. Raid the front line he was liable to do at any moment, but attack on such a big scale as to come right through? No, no one really ever, beneath the rank of battalion commander anyway, worried about that. Still, if he did, there was the redoubt anyway, and there was another called Redoubt A on the hill facing us, as one looked from Maple Redoubt across the smoke rising from dugouts which could just not be seen under the bank at 71 North. Here was rumoured to be bully beef and water also, and the machine-gun corps had some positions in it which they visited occasionally. But even a notice, no one allowed this way, failed to tempt me to explore its interior. One saw it, traced out on the hill, from Maple Redoubt, and there I have no doubt it still is, with its bully beef intact and its water a little stale. So much for Maple Redoubt, in case of attack, as I have said. It was a strong point that must hold out at all costs, while the company at 71 North came up to Rue Albert, and would support either of the front companies as the C.O. directed. The front companies, of course, held the front line to the last man. Meanwhile, the two battalions in billets would be marching up from Morland Corps, to the high ground above Redoubt A. Up there were a series of entrenched works, known as the Intermediate Line. The battalions marching up from billets might have to hold these positions, or, what was more likely, be ordered to counter-attack immediately. Such was the defence scheme. Six days in billets, three days in support. Not particularly hard, that sounds, I can hear someone say. I tried to disillusion people in an earlier chapter about the easiness of the rest in billets, owing to the incessant working parties. These were even more incessant during these four months. Let me say a few words, then, also, about life in support trenches. I admit that for officers it was not always an over-strenuous time, but look at Tommy's ordinary programme. This would be a typical day, say in April. 4 a.m. Stand to, until it got light enough to clean your rifle, then clean it. About 5 a.m. Get your rifle inspected, and turn in again. 6.30 a.m. Turn out to carry breakfast up to company in front line. Old Kent Road very muddy after rain. A heavy Dixie to be carried from top of Weymouth Avenue, up via Trafalgar Square and 76th Street, to the platoon holding the trench at the loop. 7.45 a.m. Get your breakfast. 9 a.m. Turn out for working party. Spend morning filling sandbags for building traverses in Maple Redoubt. 11.30 a.m. Carry dinner up to front company. Same at 6.30 a.m. 1 p.m. Get your own dinner. 1 to 4 p.m. With luck, rest. 4 p.m. Carry tea up to front company. 5 p.m. Get your own tea. 5.15 to 7.15 p.m. With luck, rest. 7.15 p.m. Clean rifle. 
7.30 p.m. Stand to. Rifle inspected. Jones puts his big ugly boot out suddenly, just after you have finished cleaning rifle, and upsets it. Result? Mud all over barrel and nose cap. 8.30 p.m. Stand down. Have to clean rifle again and show platoon sergeant. 9 p.m. Turn out for working party till 12 midnight in front line. 12 midnight, hot soup. 12.15 a.m. Dug out at last till 4 a.m. Stand to. And so on for three days and nights. This is really quite a moderate program. It is one that you will aim at for your men. But there are disturbing elements that sometimes compel you to dock a man's afternoon rest, for instance. A couple of canisters block Watling Street. You must send a party of ten men and an NCO to clear it at once. Or you suddenly have to supply a party to carry footballs up to Rue Albert for the trench mortar man. The adjutant is sorry. He could not let you know before. But they have just come up to the citadel and must be unloaded at once. So you have to find the men for this on the spur of the moment. And so it goes on day and night. Oh, it's not all rum and sleep, is life in Maple Redoubt. Three days and nights in support, and then comes the three days in the front line. Almost the whole of no man's land, in front of a certain sector of trenches, is a chain of mine craters. No one can have much idea of a crater until he actually sees one. I can best describe it as a hollow, like a quarry or chalk hole about fifty yards in diameter, and some forty or fifty feet deep. They vary in size, of course, but that is about the average. The sides, which are steepish, and vary in angle between thirty and sixty degrees, are composed of a very fine thin soil which is, in point of fact, a thick sediment of powdered soil that has returned to earth after a tempestuous ascent into the sky. A large mine always causes a lip above the ground level. There is usually water in the bottom of the deeper craters. When a series of craters is formed, running into one another, you get a very uneven floor. One would not keep in the centre where the crater contained water, but would skirt the water by going to one side of it. The bridges are important, as they are naturally the easiest way across the craters. A bombing patrol, for instance, could crawl over a bridge without having to go right down to the bottom level, and, which is more important, will not have a steep climb up over very soft and spongy soil. These bridges are the lips of the larger craters when they join the smaller. This crater chain, being understood, the system of sentries is easily grasped. Originally, before mining commenced, our front line ran, roughly, in a straight line. Then began the great game of mining under the enemy parapet, and blowing him up, and its corollary countermining, or blowing up the enemy's mine galleries before he reached your parapet. Such is the game as played underground by the tunneling companies, R.E. To the infantry belongs the work, if not blown up, of consolidating the crater, whether made by your or an enemy mine, that is to say, of seizing your side of the crater and guarding it by bombing posts in such a way as to prevent the enemy from doing anything except hold his side of the crater. For instance, take a single crater, caused by us blowing up the German gallery before it reaches our parapet. 
If we do nothing, the enemy digs a trench into the crater, and can get into the crater any time he likes, and bomb our front line, and return to his trench unseen. This, of course, never happens, as we dig a sap into the crater from our side, and the result is stalemate. Each side can see into the crater, so neither can go into it. Each platoon has many posts to find men for. All these posts are composed of one bomber, who has a box of bombs with him and his rifle without bayonet fixed, and one bayonet man. There is no special structure about a post. It is just the spot in the trench where the sentries are placed. Sometimes one or two posts could be dispensed with by day, if one post could, with a periscope, watch the ground in front of both. The sentry groups are relieved every two hours by the platoon NCO on trench duty. There is always an NCO on trench duty, going the rounds of his sentry groups in every platoon, and one officer going round the groups in the company. Thus is secured the endless chain of unwinking eyes that stretches from Dunkirk to Switzerland. There were two Lewis guns to every company. The Lewis gun teams found their sentries independently of the platoons and had their dugouts. A nice compact little affair with a Lewis gun team, always very snug and self-contained. Each platoon had a dugout about fifty yards behind the front line, and as far as possible one arranged to get the men a few hours sleep in them every day, but only a certain percentage at a time. There were four stretcher-bearers and two signallers. Also a permanent wiring party had its quarters here, a corporal and five men. They made up concertina, or gooseberry, wire by day, and were out three or four hours every night putting it out. They were, of course, exempt from other platoon duties. Every platoon had a pioneer to attend to sanitary arrangements, and other odd jobs, such as fetching up soup, and each platoon had an orderly ready to take messages. At company headquarters, besides the officer's servants, were the company orderly and company officer's cook. An officer on trench duty was accompanied by his servant as orderly. This was the distribution of the company in the front line. Every morning from nine to twelve, all men not on sentry worked at repairing and improving the trenches, and the same for four hours during the night. Work done to strengthen the parapet can only be done by night. Every night wire was put out. Every night a patrol went out. Every day one stood to arms for an hour before dawn, and an hour after dusk. And day and night there was an intermittent stinging and buzzing of black-winged instruments between the opposing trenches. Of shells I have already spoken. Next in deadliness were rifle grenades which are bombs with a rod attachment that is put down the barrel of an ordinary rifle. Four of these rifles are stood in a rack fixed to the ground, and fired by a string from a few yards away at a very high trajectory. They are a very deadly weapon, as you cannot see them dropping onto you. Then there is a multiform genus called trench mortar, being projectiles of all kinds and shapes lobbed over from close range. The canister was the most loathed. It was simply a tin oil can, the size of a lady's muff, large. One heard a thud, and watched the beast rising, rising, then stationary, it seemed in mid-air, 
and then come toppling down, 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 on top of one with a crash, three seconds silence, and then a most colossal explosion, blowing everything in its vicinity to atoms. These canisters were loathed by the men with a most personal and intense aversion. Yet they were really not nearly as dangerous as rifle grenades, as one had time to dodge them very often, unless enfiladed in a communication trench. They were, moreover, very local in their effects. A shell has splinters that spread far and wide. A trench mortar is a clumsy monster with a thin skin, no splinters, and an abominable, noisy, vulgar way of making the most of itself. Sausages were another but milder form of the vulgar trench mortar. Aerial torpedoes were daintier people with wings, who looked so cherubic as they came sailing over, that one almost forgot their deadly stinging powers. They, too, were a species of trench mortar. It is natural to write lightly of these things, yet they were no light matters. They were the instruments of death that took their daily toll of lives. In this chapter, describing the system and routine of ordinary trench warfare, I have tried to prepare the canvas for several pictures I have drawn in bold bare lines. Now I am putting in a wash of colour, the atmosphere of death. Sometimes we forget it in the interest of the present activity. Sometimes we saw it face to face, without a qualm. But always it was there with its relentless, overhanging presence, dulling our spirits, wearing out our lives. The papers are always full of Tommy smiling. Bairn's father has immortalised his indomitable humour. Yes, it is true. We laugh, we smile. But for an hour of laughter there are how many hours of weariness, strain, and grim agony. It is great that Tommy's laughter has been immortalised. But do not forget that its greatness lies in this, that it was uttered beneath the canopy of ever-impending death. End of chapter 6